through the Department of Justice's Inspector General report about conduct in the 2016 election. And I want to be very clear here, this was not just about the Trump campaign or a specific individual. What the Department of Justice recognized and found out through analyzing surveillance applications from the FBI is that the government, specifically the, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, just wasn't following the law. That is Billy Easley. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this is Top Priority. Top Priority, a production of Americans for Prosperity Foundation. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is technology and innovation. Specifically, we're going to be talking about government surveillance. This podcast was recorded on May 10th, 2021, and joining me to discuss the subject is Neil Chilson of the Charles Koch Institute and Billy Easley from the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Policy Department. In the conversation that follows, you'll hear us use terms like community and vision. You'll hear us talk about mutually reinforcing principles. And before we get into the interview, let's talk about what those things mean. Americans for Prosperity Foundation is part of the Stand Together community. A link to the Stand Together website is included in the show notes. Now, each episode, we focus heavily on how our vision guides our decisions in the different specific areas of focus we're trying to impact. We call these priority initiatives. Sometimes we abbreviate them and we call them PI or PIs. Now, the vision is ambitious. We break barriers that stand in the way of people realizing their potential. This moves our society towards one of mutual benefit where people succeed by helping others improve their lives. This vision is built upon four mutually reinforcing principles, which we'll also discuss. The principles are equal rights, mutual benefit, openness, and self-actualization. You can find the vision and the four mutually reinforcing principles, again, in the show notes. Now, let's talk about what government surveillance in a free society should look like and how it compares to what we're seeing today. Well, let's... Let's talk about it then. We yeah. we talk about government surveillance. First of all, let's go ahead and say hello to our, our friends and listeners at the NSA, the CIA, and maybe the <laughs> FBI. Um, <laughs> and, and say, you know, government surveillance is something that a lot of people are concerned about. My question to you two, wherever you want to start, Neil, uh, Billy, how concerned should people be about it? I think people should really be concerned about government surveillance and the limitations both through statutes and the law and through um, our cultural norms about how we think the government should win and how the government should be able to surveil American citizens. And I think the best way to sort of start this sort of discussion is to sort of acknowledge two things. First of all, there is such a thing as legitimate government surveillance of individuals who are uh, suspected of engaging in crime, right? Uh, When we think about this, we think about the same sort of judicial uh, due process oversight features that basically apply to any other situation where the government has the ability to ask for uh, an imposition of liberty, right? And if those sort of guardrails are in place where the government says, hey, look, 
we're going to go to uh, a court. We're going to lay our case out about why should we be be able to listen to John Doe's. Why should we should be able to wiretap John Doe's cell phone, or why we should be able to track his cell phone location, right? And we have a judge who says, "All right, let me review that evidence, and you have proven that there's a reasonable suspicion here, and I'm going to allow this to move forward." In my view, that sort of process and guardrail process to ensure that someone's rights are respected and that there's a neutral arbiter like a judge being able to review the government's case, that is materially and constitutionally different than what we see in other situations with regards to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and the sort of wanton, warrantless government surveillance that our organization and our community is targeting for reform. So I just want to focus, I just want to note that when it's legitimate government surveillance, I, what I'm talking about is some sort of action from uh, a due process, literally the a court being able to, to analyze the evidence and make uh, a determination instead of the government deciding to make a determination on its own to engage. And then the, the last point I'll make on this is the flip side of this. What does warrantless surveillance look at look like, and what are what are, what impacts does it have on individuals and communities? And the prototypical example that I always bring up is the surveillance of civil rights leaders by the FBI. That was the use of government surveillance tools in order to influence matters of public policy without the sort of due process protections that are necessary under the Constitution. And it had major impacts. Martin Luther King um, was contacted by the FBI director, right? I mean, that's kind of crazy and, and a really sort of deleterious view of government of power and authority and people's lives. So if we don't get this balance right, not only does it allow the government to engage on, engage and harm people's ability to, to advocate for particular views, it also harms their ability and credibility to engage in actually justified investigations. Yeah, and I, I think I'd just add on that, you know, Billy is a much deeper expert on uh, Fourth Amendment government surveillance stuff than me. But one thing that is pretty clear in this space, uh, even to a, a dabbler like myself, is that what we call the pacing problem uh, generally in tech, tech policy, which is this problem that technology moves fast and law develops slowly, is enormously problematic in the government surveillance space, space in part because of how the law has treated content or data that a third party has about you. So for example, when I send an email through Gmail, uh, that's a third party, right? And and the law around that right now puts less protection on that content than it does on uh, my own conversations within my house. Even though many of us see, and, and, and in a, a really connected world, the technology has has moved so that we have very we have a lot of private transactions that happen that involve third parties much more so than even uh, you know ten years ago or and especially more than like fifty years ago uh, when some of this law developed and so there's a real problem there's a real mismatch between uh, the power of government to get information from third parties and the protections of the individual liberties of of you and I and the ability to do uh, private conversations um, using some of these new technologies. And that's an area where the law definitely needs to catch up uh, to the tech. So just so I make sure I understand what you're saying, if if you send me an email via Gmail and the government wants that, 
then it's easier for them to go to Gmail and say, we need to look at these emails and what they may not need to go through the same due process as they had before, or the laws are a little less strict, making it easier for them to get those? For certain types of information, uh, I'm not 100% sure that that's true for the content of the email, but it it absolutely is true for the the what's called like the metadata around your email. So the time that you sent it, who you sent it to, uh, all of that information is is much more uh, is much less protected than you know if if you and I had if I had sent you a regular letter, uh, for example, that is much more protected than sending an email in part because of some of that. Uh, outdated doctrine. Hmm. Maybe it's just a way of incentivizing the post office. I don't know. It could be part of the uh, <laughs> the, the uh, marketing structure there. I don't know. This is not sponsored by Proton Mail, though. I do want to put point that out there. Though. Maybe they they could they could sponsor the podcast. I suppose. This invariably happens where I ask my first question and then experts start giving fantastic answers and then while I'm listening, I think you know, it would have been a better opening question. <laughs> and this the better opening question this time is maybe we ought to really talk about what we mean by government surveillance and, and what we're really defining here and, and talking about. Billy, when you, when you talk about government surveillance, what is it that, that comes to mind when you're talking about it? When I think about surveillance, I think about ways that the government is able to track individuals see the content of communications or see background information about their communications that is that is so important that they're able to make uh, that the government is able to make uh, implicate implications uh, and and um, uh, assumptions about an individual so a good example of this is uh, metadata right if I may if the government is able to see who I am calling, Look, just look at the phone numbers, not the content of the of the of the calls themselves. They're able to make plenty of assumptions about my personal life, right? They could look at that those calls and say, "Oh, well, this person is calling this person all the time, right? Maybe, you know, maybe they are making calls that are sensitive or that matter to them." And so that's one of the reasons why, to tie it back to what Neil was saying before, the law has not really caught up with the expectations that people have because the law uh which i believe i believe is in the early 1980s the smith versus maryland case that created the third party doctrine the law makes this sort of assumption that all right well the information as long as it's not content information we don't really need to worry right because the the privacy implication is isn't as strong and i don't think that's true at all but yeah before i go into a broader description of it those three points, I think, are the, the the biggest sort of issues that I I sort of raise when I talk about government surveillance. The content of your communications with other other individuals, I think everyone sort of understands that and agrees with that. Your location, which is sort of a new sort of thing that, that's more modern, a recent ability to to track individuals by the government without any sort of stopping point, right? And finally, and quite honestly, the most like problematic issue that I think a lot of people are divided on is this idea of is metadata actually a privacy implication right if is that a form of surveillance that the government has access to metadata our view is that all three of these categories of surveillance have an impact an explicit impact on people's expectation of privacy and that there should be guardrails judicially create guardrails for for all of them you know i i, I would think of it you, you, i think you can think of 
if you kind of picture in your mind what we think of as surveillance, it's like a guy sitting in a cop car with his coffee and looking into at your apartment with binoculars or something like that. And I think what Billy is saying and that I agree with 100% is that technology has made it so that in many ways, government can do that without having the guy in the car with the with the binoculars, right? Like they can get all that information much more easily without the resource costs that served as a sort of constraint and therefore a, a sort of practical provider of freedom often, where even if the government wanted to do that to everybody, they couldn't do it to everybody. And now they can sort of do it re retrospectively, right? Like it can be as if, given the technologies that we have, as if there was a cop sitting outside of our uh, apartments uh, the whole time, as soon as the, the police, uh, as soon as the government is interested in in uh, finding out something about us. And uh, that's that's problematic. That's new. Like Billy said, obviously there are legitimate reasons for government to survey, uh, surveil and, and we don't want to uh, hinder those. Uh, but the balance in many ways has shifted quite far towards the possibility of government doing it. And so I think it's important to have to make sure that the procedural protections that we've had in place for a long time also are essentially as effective as they were uh, perhaps in the past without without hindering legitimate government surveillance. It seems that this issue of government surveillance really came on the scene a lot or, or was very visible during the Bush administration. Uh, we saw a lot of talk about it then, which, of course, culminated in that fantastic scene in the dark night where Morgan Freeman has all this power, right? And then he says, no one man should have this power. Pardon me, but I'm reviewing all the Christopher Nolan movies at this time in my life. So I happen to remember this, but it, it, that is such an obvious comparison to what was being alleged that the government was doing at that time. And we've seen some pushback against that. I'm curious if you could tell me right now where things are at what, or, or better yet, maybe, maybe the good question is, is there anything out there that really worries you about what the government's doing right now when it comes to government surveillance? Yes. Um, so I, I can jump onto that. I'll give the example of what we learned through the last year through the Department of Justice's Inspector General report about conduct in the 2016 election. And I want to be very clear here. This was not just about the Trump campaign or specific individual. What the Department of Justice recognized and found out through analyzing surveillance applications from the FBI is that the government, specifically the, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, just wasn't following the law in terms of how it was applying for uh, for applications to review, to surveil members of the Trump campaign and other applications, right? They were surveilling, I think they found over three dozen examples of people who were being surveilled where the FBI basically just didn't do their homework and didn't provide strong enough evidence to the court or chose not to provide evidence that demonstrated that there were flaws in their investigation, right? And those that's really concerning to us. And so one of the things that we have done at AFP is supported reforms to try to plug those holes and sort of require there to be more um, more input from judges, federal district court judges, to sort of push back against the, the government, specifically, specifically the federal government, from being able to be the only person in the room, the only person being able to, to tell their story about why they should be able to pursue and surveil an individual. You know, we we have a adversarial judicial system. We, it's set up for defendants and the government to be able to argue against each other. And the surveillance context is a very strange one because a lot of times 
whenever the government is applying for a, a, a warrant or a subpoena or a wiretap application, it's only the government and, and the court that's there, right? In some instances, if you're applying to, you know, if you're asking for a subpoena from Google, Google might say, hey, yeah, we, we have an interest here in, in the privacy of our customers and they might intervene, but not always. Um, so it's really important that Congress have rules in place that require the FBI and other agencies to be, just to be honest, quite honest with you, right, about both the flaws in their investigation, any extenuating circumstances or uh, what's the Brady reference? Do you remember this, Neil? The um, it's uh, some uh, exculpatory, exculpatory evidence, uh, evidence that demonstrates that there might the person might be innocent of of the of the crime that they're being accused of. The government has a responsibility to disclose that, even in surveillance context, and and they and they should. So that's that's one point. I I would sort of bucket that long winded explanation. Sorry, Dwayne as procedural concerns that I have, right? These are circumstances where the the pr- legal procedure that we have in place is not protecting the Fourth Amendment rights and individual liberties that the Constitution enshrines. And then the other thing that I would sort of point out is the growth of technology. We've seen this time and time again in Supreme Court cases where the Supreme Court has said, hey, we need to sort of the, the expectations of privacy have changed now, or property rights are being impacted by the use of these surveillance issues. Um, so two quick examples of this. I believe it was either Scalia or Alito who sort of used a property rights argument for GPS signals to be placed on on cars, right? They said, hey, look, you can't just put a GPS signal on a car and then just in perpetuity follow uh, an American citizen through that, right? There has to be some sort of guardrail about that. And this was a, a case where I believe the, the government got uh, a GPS warrant for 20 days and they followed the car for a full month instead, right? And they said, oh, well, it's fine. There's no reasonable expectation of privacy here. No, 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 no. You know, the technology has changed. People expect that the government is enabled to follow where they drive constantly, right? And then the other case I was sort of give an example is I believe it's the Carpenter case. I think this is the cell phone uh, location tracking case where basically the Supreme Court established that people have an expectation of privacy in the, their cell phone location, uh, that if the government wants that information, they have to put out a warrant for it. And I think th- those are circumstances where the law is trying to catch up with, with technology, except I would argue that the law is at least you know five to ten years late on on that on that curve, and that's the reason why I think it's really important that Congress and state legislatures, I'll also add, sort of create their own privacy protective policies instead of waiting for courts to um, to engage. Neil, anything? Uh, I don't have a ton to add except that that was the the, the case that Billy was referencing is called United States versus Jones, and it was a Scalia decision. Uh, it's a very interesting case worth reading about slapping a trucker on somebody's car and when the government can do that and when they can't. And and the Carpenter case that he was mentioning is another example of that third party doctrine uh, and the Supreme Court trying to deal with that in a way that makes sense under the current technology uh, where the, the sort of naive application of it, simple application of it would say, well, obviously, 
you gave this information. The justification, I, I should, the justification for the third party doctrine is essentially you gave this information to somebody else, so you don't expect it to be private. That doesn't match with how actually anybody does this now. First of all, most people don't necessarily know that their phone is telling their 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 cell phone company where they are all the time, constantly, uh, and that, and it, that it actually needs to in order to work. And so that's not really that doesn't. The Supreme Court was trying to square those things, where the third party doctrine, in a simple application, would just say, "Well, obviously, you gave this information to a third party, so you don't have uh, the same strength of a pr privacy interest in it." Whereas the Supreme Court was said, well, actually, that doesn't seem to make much sense, practically speaking, because that's not how anybody thinks about it. And so we are seeing the, the courts trying to grapple with this. But like Billy said, it's once in a while, and it's a slow process, and it's something that uh, Congress probably should, uh, well, definitely should engage on. We've All been right. talking a lot about federal-level stuff with metadata and cell phones and, and tracking, that sort of thing. But I, I, I'd like to dig a little down, a little bit down into the local level where we have police departments who have technology and how they're using it. And some of the stuff, I, I, I think we've talked or I've read about something called ShotSpotter or Stingray. Could you tell me a, a little bit about the concerns there and our philosophy towards them? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll start with the most problematic in my mind, which is uh, the Stingray situation. Um, so Stingrays are these sorts of cell phone, they, they mimic cell phone towers, right? So if, you know, if I use my cell phone, um, if I'm calling someone, or even if, if it's just not being used at all, right? It's always connected to the network, sending out signals to cell phone towers. And you could use those towers to sort of triangulate someone's location. You, we've all watched CSI. You got this. So stingrays are not cell phone towers, but they're used by police forces to be able to sort of mimic them and be able to get the information from cell phones, that the signals that they're sending out constantly, right? And this is awful, right? This is not the sort of – this is a sort of use of technology, right, that – the sort of sucking up of third-party location information without a warrant, right, that the public is unaware of, so there's no reasonable way that they would recognize that this is happening, right? And the government relies on it to actually engage in investigations. There have been situations – I remember uh, there was a famous, uh, infamous case in Maryland where a, a public defender challenged the use of a stingray, right, because he said, hey, look, this is a – this is a violation of my defendant's Fourth Amendment rights. There was no warrant issued to be able to get this location information, and it was used by a, a government device that you know we we don't know anything about. And what the uh, I don't remember specifically what city it was that this was in in Maryland, but what the prosecutor's office simply did was they said okay, and they dropped the case, so that way people wouldn't be able to you know find out more information about how they were using stingrays, right? And wouldn't be uh, subject to a potentially bad uh, or uh, bad for them judicial finding uh, against the use of stingrays. So the ACLU has really been on the case about this, I think, correctly so, as a Fourth Amendment violation. So have we. And I think it's actually uh, in, uh, I think it's actually, this problem has gotten worse in, in a lot of ways. Stingrays are one example. I think the, the I, I'm actually, I'm actually not going to use the shot spotter point. I'm actually going to talk about geolocation 
uh, geofencing warrants, I think is uh, the proper term for it, uh, because we've worked with the uh, uh, NACDL, the National Association of Defense Lawyers, on this point. There have the government has gone to uh, cell phone cell phone companies and said, "Hey, look, can we get a list of every one cell phone number that was in this location?" Right, and that sort of location sort of that's the sort of mass surveillance use of that information, right? Because, and in fact, this is a sort of intersection between legitimate and illegitimate use of surveillance that I really want people to sort of think about, right? Because in this instance, there was a robbery in a specific location. There, This was a high robbery location in, in, uh, in a city. I think it was Detroit. Don't quote me on that. And so the police said, hey, look, we know that there was a robbery here and that there have been multiple robberies in this location. We are going to go to Verizon or whatever and say, hey, just give us a bulk collection of all the cell phones that were in this area around this time. That's hundreds of cell phone numbers, right? There's hundreds of people who have been put into a dragnet, right? That's not the sort of particularized use of of, uh, of information that the Fourth Amendment requires. Does that sort of answer your question, Dwayne, about the, the the problems on both the the local level? And in fact, I I will let you know. I'm I'm very glad you asked that question because I kind of feel the federal level gets all the attention here mm-hmm. because of the Patriot Act and Section 215. But a lot of the innovations, for lack of a better term, about how to use technology to surveil people is happening on the local level and is happening with partnerships between private companies, private entities, and police departments. And some of those can be really good. But just because they're, they help solve crimes does not necessarily mean that they align with the restrictions placed within the Fourth Amendment. And it's not an either-or choice. We can do both. To give you a little bit, uh, we, we've talked quite a bit. You, We all have. And I think you know um, where I stand ideologically. So to give you a little idea of the evolution of my philosophy over the years i will tell you that had you asked me circa 2002 to 2004 i would have looked at you and said neil look man if you haven't done anything wrong you got nothing to worry about right i mean what's your problem if you haven't done anything wrong don't sweat it this is for the bad guys and now i look at this and say wait hold on stop what do you say to someone who says this surveillance isn't a problem. If you haven't done anything wrong, don't worry about it. Well, the first thing I would do is point them to uh, a great book called the Three Crimes a Day, I think, or something like that, uh, where uh, the the author basically points out that probably given the complexity of the federal uh, and and state and local uh, codes, uh, we probably all are committing crimes every day. They're probably not worth enforcing, which is why we're not all in jail. And and people may not even know that they're on the books. But if for some reason a government official wanted to come after you and had these powerful uh, surveillance tools uh, at their disposal and wanted to find a reason to, to harass you and uh, you know at least bring you into uh, an investigation, um, that's very doable. And so, so those protections, so that just the idea that you don't think you've done anything wrong is not, is not enough to protect you from uh, an abuse of government authority. And on top of that, people who have done things that are, are illegal still have rights. And those rights are very important, uh, not just because 
Well, it, because we want to make sure that the government has to prove its case, it can't just throw people in jail willy-nilly because it suspects them of having done a crime. We we put a, a pretty heavy burden on the government to remove, you know, somebody's freedom to to move about, and that that the due process protections that we have in place are a key part of that protection. So. So while it might it might not uh, directly affect the person who has done who hasn't done anything wrong, it very much does indirectly affect them because it, it turns our society into one which government has the authority to throw whoever it wants in jail uh, whenever, and that's not good. That's not good for the people who have done something bad, and it's definitely it's it's also not good for the people who you know the government hasn't come after yet. I'm gonna have said it better myself. I have nothing to add on that one. <laughs> you know, one thing that I, while you were talking, I was thinking about the the ignorance of my statement way back when, that if you've got nothing, if you've done nothing wrong, you've got nothing to worry about. There are really two big problems with that comment, and the first one is there's an assumption there that the people in government will always do what's right, and all the people in government have nothing but your best interests at heart. And there are there are nefarious players in government too that can use that data to nefarious to nefarious ends. And the other thing is this idea that that your team will always be the ones in charge, and that that will nothing will change there, and they won't use that for nefarious reasons or for political reasons or whatever. Yeah, I'll I'll just add to that. You mentioned the the Dark Knight before, Dwayne, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the the ending when he pushes the button and the big, you know, bulk surveillance apparatus you created just suddenly short circuits, right? And the 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 whole implication of that is that like Batman and Lucius Fox knew that, you know, they were the good guys in the room and that they would destroy this, you know, surveillance system as soon as it had done its duty and that they were done with it, right? Like that is an ideal that could only exist in a movie and in a comic book, right? Because in government, once you create these sorts of frameworks, right, these sorts of uh, tools that exert so much power, right, they never dismantle themselves, right? They they exist in perpetuity for the next person to use who might not be as magnanimous or as much or as concerned about civil liberties, right, as you say. So that's what you said is exactly what I say to people about this. You might trust the people in power now, but they're they're not always going to be the people in power. And also, thankfully, the Constitution does not have an exception for for you know benevolent rulers, right? The the Fourth Amendment applies no matter who is in charge. And I and I think that's important for people to to recognize when they when they look at our privacy rights and and sort of think about when it should apply and when it shouldn't. There's also I keep thinking of how how wrong I was thinking this and it's 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 uh humbling there's also uh, an arrogance to that statement too in that i i was basically saying look i can't think of any way this would be abused and therefore there is no way it can be abused it completely dismisses what you mentioned earlier the new and innovative ways to continue to come up to abuse this information in in, in new and innovative ways and it's just it's 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 such a dangerous assumption that I, I'm glad that we had this this conversation, and I couldn't have been more wrong back then to say that. And now, I, I don't know about anybody else listening to this, but now I have a better uh, answer to folks who say that. Because they still say that, don't they? No, I, I think that's right. And I think uh, that's the reason why it's really incumbent on the people who are listening to this podcast, right, and the people at 
at AFPHQ and all of our right and left center partners to really go out there and really advocate on both the state and federal level for changes to our privacy laws. And we've been doing that um, in states such as Utah, New Hampshire, right? Passing laws that reverse the third party doctrine or create new protections for, for digital data and metadata uh, requiring warrant or subpoena. These are really common sense proposals that we're seeing feedback and support from from both sides, uh, both political sides. And I, I think that's uh, I think that's a good sign for the fact that, you know, people are, are starting to wake up about this issue and see it as a as a priority on, on the state level. Neil, over the past few years, I, it's hard for me to judge. Have you seen any kind of shift on the Overton window one way or the other towards people being more disinclined to allow government surveillance like this or people being more open to the idea? So I would say there's been a sort of shift in uh, attention on this issue. Um, I think, you know, post 2001, uh, obviously there was a big push at the federal level um, to give tools to combat terrorism. And as always happens in a crisis, people who have been looking for additional authority have a ready list of uh, items that they want government to pass, uh, and they promise that this will help prevent the next crisis. Uh, That happened post-2001. I think there was a lot of backlash to that. That backlash has continued, um, but it hasn't, like, like Billy and I have both been saying, it hasn't really pushed the law to catch up. There's still lots of things that were both sort of broken post-2001, but were broken before 2001, uh, frankly, and that really haven't been fixed very well. So there's still a lot of work to do in that in that government surveillance space. What I'd say is that the shift in attention has been more over to the area that I spent a lot of time on, which has been in the commercial space, you know, information gathering by commercial entities. Um, I think the key thing to understand here is that the problems are pretty different in the sense that the big challenge with government surveillance is it's not in service of a market. <laughs> There's no market feedback mechanism in government, right? Like Billy said, if you create a product, if you know that Batman product is created uh, for surveillance for government purposes, it's not going away. It doesn't matter how much like consumers don't like it unless they can push the right levers in government to get that sort of thing repealed. It's, it's very hard to get that away. That's not the same. The, the feedback mechanisms are much more flexible in, in the private sector. And in many cases, you know, the incentives of the companies are, you know, they're trying to make money. Uh, and so the reason that they're collecting information is somewhat different than it. Well, it's quite different than why government does it. And those incentives, I think, are important to keep in mind when we think about like what kind of restrictions we should have in the commercial space. What I will say that brings me a lot of concern is where these two intersect, right? So uh, well, let me back up just for a second. I think it's often said that we don't have privacy protections in the U.S., but we have a whole armada of privacy protections. They're just not an overarching law, right? They're sector-specific around healthcare, health information, location information, uh, even cell phone information uh, on how private companies can use this information. And then you have the the backstop of the Federal Trade Commission, which holds companies to their promises to consumers and stops unfair uh, practices. Uh, so there's that whole, that's the backdrop for law enforcement. And, you know, the FTC has brought hundreds of cases, including against all the the big companies that we all think of as tech companies uh, in the privacy space. Where I get concerned is where government 
like like we've been saying, where government reaches over to the data that those companies have collected for commercial purposes and says, we would like to use that information for law enforcement or surveillance purposes. We do not have good, strong protections for consumers that, that keep those two areas separate. And I worry about that a lot. I think that's an area where we need to have a lot more focus uh, because frankly, the risks of government misuse of data are as much as we've heard about like the concerns around privacy from a, a private company, those tend to you know fall out into things like I get ads I, that are I don't like or that are offensive to me or uh, you know there can be bigger problems around credit rating and other things. Um, we have some laws to deal with that, but obviously there's some problems there. But when you're talking about the government throwing you in jail or uh, collecting information on uh, what who your acquaintances are in order to keep track of what you're doing, uh, those concerns are much more tangible, uh, at least to me. And so finding a way to ensure that you know the pretty powerful commercial uses that information can be put to uh, are still allowed and that I'm allowed to enjoy the benefits from that. Uh, without having to somehow surrender all that data to the government as well. Uh, I think it's really important that we find uh, solutions to that particular problem. One one more quick thing I'll add to that is a great example of what Neil was talking about when he's saying the use of data from private actors being used by the government in ways that we might not might not be kosher. COVID is a good example of this, right? There's a whole big concern about how uh, the government might use private health data about consumers, right, to sort of try to find ways to contain COVID, right? I have no problem with private entities like Apple being able to engage in location tracking that is voluntary. I want to be very clear that, you know, if I'm I'm if I'm an Apple phone user, I voluntarily said sign up to say, hey, look, I'm okay with you tracking me to be able to determine whether I've been in contact with someone who um, has COVID uh, and to alert me of that. I think it's very different from that, from allowing the government to say, all right, we're going to take all that location information from uh, individuals for the purposes of COVID tracking, right? If we don't know how they're going to use it in other contexts. I think that was the big privacy concern that we were seeing last year, especially. And I think that's a good example of the sort of the ways that we, this information might we might be okay with the type of information from private entities being used for specific purposes, but what you forget is if it's shared with the government, it could be used for a whole host of other ones as well that implicate our, our liberty interests. Is there anything that we should have talked about that I didn't know enough to ask about? Anything that you came into this wanting to make sure that we touched on that we haven't yet? I think we should. Uh, I think we should talk about the the commercial data privacy issues that are bubbling up on on the state and federal level because there these are two halves of the same question, right? How government uses this data and how the private entities that we interact with on a daily basis, Google, Facebook, Amazon, how they use that data and what consumer expectations are and what, if anything, the government should do to sort of be, uh, you know, moderate those sorts of agreements. And really, I think the person to do that is to my left, Neil. So I would I would love to hear his viewpoints on this and how he thinks the community should think about these issues. Big picture, you know, we're talking about information use, uh, both on the government level, we spent a lot of time on that, but the commercial uh, use, like I said, has different incentives. Big picture, I would say, we get a lot out of, I mean, trade is, hugely beneficial 
And trade and information is hugely beneficial as well. And so when I'm communicating with Instagram by browsing through my feed and getting this free service where I get to see everybody's uh, breakfast, what they ate for breakfast, uh, and also get these targeted ads that I have to say are strangely uh, effective on me anyways, uh, you know, there's, there's an exchange going on there. And I think we all have seen the power of that exchange, the ability to share information and to uh, for small businesses to reach cu- uh, customers around the world instead of just in their, you know, whoever happens to show up at their storefront. So these are very powerful tools uh, and they rely on data. And uh, the U.S. has had a approach to privacy that has largely focused on addressing problems when they pop up, what I would call a permissionless approach, rather than a precautionary approach, which says, hey, we don't know how this might be used badly. And so we should we should um, set a bunch of rules in place ahead of time. That sounds like good planning, but in the but in a fast moving space like uh, like like information technology, uh, it often cuts off the uh, the things that could go right as well as the things that could go wrong. And that's an approach that I think the U.S. has been very good at uh, avoiding. It's an approach that is that Europe has been much more uh, willing to embrace, and you can see the differences. In, in innovation as a result, uh, where the U.S. is a, a leader in this space and Europe is, it's hard to even find, it's hard to even think of, you know, two big tech companies in, in Europe. And I would say, despite that, there's not strong evidence that people in Europe feel like their privacy is more protected than in the U.S., uh, despite the fact that they have this huge infrastructure of law around it. And so, you know, as we're thinking through how to deal with this issue in the U.S., I think it's important that we focus on what are the actual problems that we're trying to solve? What harms are we trying to address? Most people, when you talk to them, what they're really worried about around privacy is that somebody is going to steal their money or they're going to like somehow mess with their health data. And these are more data security concerns than they are just strict privacy concerns. Increasingly, some people are worried about like just big picture, like, I don't know who's watching me. And uh, transparency is really important in that space. Um, But I think most people are willing to make the exchange of the powerful free services that we have for getting targeted advertising. Um, And and so that's going to continue to evolve. But I I think that's really important when, when at the state or the federal level, when we're talking about privacy legislation, first question to always ask is, what harm to consumers are you trying to alleviate with this legislation? And how do you uh, think that this helps with that? Um, If we can focus on harm, uh, that's the surest way to make sure that the laws actually make consumers' lives better off, rather than just be uh, sort of window dressing that add a bunch of compliance costs to companies without really making people feel better, um, which is the sort of European model. Thanks again to Billy and Neil for joining the podcast. And if you have any questions about this part of the Technology and Innovation Priority Initiative or any of the other PIs we've talked about before, please send them to toppriority at afphq.org. And if you haven't taken the opportunity to leave a review for the podcast, now is a great time to do it. Please consider taking a few seconds on whatever device or whatever platform you're listening to the podcast on and uh, leave us a review. We'd love to hear how we can make things better or if things are already great, that's, that's awesome too. Until next time, 
take care and we'll see you then.